Well, it is a blessing and honor to be with you here this morning, and I'm, I'm thankful for the honor of bringing the Word of God here and uh, sharing the Scriptures with you. And to begin our time, I wanted to read a, a brief section of Scripture it was in the Scripture reading. This is the occasion in which the Lord taught his disciples before sending them out to proclaim the gospel. A portion of the text that we heard this morning was in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 10, where the Lord said, commanding his disciples, he said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That is a very solemn and yet necessary exhortation, isn't it? There's a sense in which you have within this verse good news and bad news. The good news is, is that men cannot destroy your soul. The bad news is, is that they would if they could. There's an exposure of the violence of the human heart that you see in this verse that sobers our minds. It gives us a sense of what we're up against and it reminds us of the fact that as we live in this life, we're in the middle of a battle, a spiritual battle of the forces of darkness against God and his people. And brethren, I would say to you that if it were not for the Lord, we would all be overwhelmed with fear. We live in a world that seems to have been turned upside down. If you ask the question, what is a woman, you might find yourself in the middle of a fight. Today, gender is some sort of a debatable issue. The whole concept of male and female has been mutilated beyond measure, even literally and physically. The LGBTQ movement has, it would appear, taken over much of our society. People who talk about and rage about justice insist that the only remedy for past injustices is to apply present-day injustices. The euphemism of abortion is still with us, even despite some of the progress that we've seen lately in our laws. But child murder is still plaguing our nation, and even child mutilation in the name of helping others with gender dysphoria. And parents who go to school boards just to protest the idea of children being having their minds polluted with pornography are now being labeled as domestic terrorists for doing so. It is an upside-down world. And as Paul warned Timothy, he said that men will, in fact, proceed from bad to worse. So we're not surprised. We must not be surprised. In fact, I would submit to you, and already some of the conversations I've had with a number of you has 
brought to bear this realization of the fact that there is nothing new under the sun. Things have always been this way in this world. We live in a fallen world. We had the privilege of going to the United Kingdom this summer, and we spent some time in Edinburgh. And there we uh, looked at some of the burial grounds where faithful brethren were buried in Edinburgh. They're called the Scottish Covenanters. I'm sure many of you have read about them. Many were killed and others were left to die in prison. And what was their great crime? Well, their crime was is that they stood for the gospel and resolved to serve and worship the Lord according to their conscience, according to the scriptures, rather than bowing to the mandates of a king. And we spent a particular amount of time in what's called Greyfriars Kirk, or church, where we were shown an area where some 1,200 Scottish covenanters were imprisoned In this area, basically, they were locked behind a gate and were enclosed in this open area where they were exposed to the elements. They were left without provisions, again, for the crime of standing for Christ. Some recanted, sadly. Others died from exposure and starvation and were buried in a section of the graveyard that was exclusively designated for thieves and criminals. Another remaining 250 were boarded on a ship called the Crown of London in order to be sold as slaves and sent to the colonies. Once the ship set out to sea, a storm had come in and drove the ship onto the rocks leading to the ship to a certain doom where it would sink. Before it did sink, though, the captain and the crew abandoned the ship. And before they left the ship, they made sure to lock all the doors and make sure that the covenanters could not escape the ship, such that they remained chained and in shackles and would drown with the ship. And why did, why did they do that? Well, they did that in part because of the vehemence and hatred that they had for these Christians. But also, there was the brutal reality of the fact that according to maritime law, if you were a ship captain, the only way that you could get remuneration for lost cargo is if you lost it at sea in some natural disaster. And because slaves were considered to be chattel or mere property... They wanted to make sure that those individuals were lost at sea so that they could claim remuneration for their loss. It was just about money. This is the world we live in. And we're fools to imagine that it's anything other than this. Our time there in Edinburgh was bittersweet. And I say bittersweet because it was sad to see the brutality that was exacted against these children of God. But it was encouraging to see the faithfulness of these brethren to follow Christ to the end, 
such that they did not fear those who can kill the body but cannot destroy the soul. That is encouraging. To see them remain faithful to the end is indeed deeply, deeply encouraging. In view of these things, brethren, I would just say to you that it is a dangerous thing to fear man. Once an individual gives into the fear of man, there's no telling what that individual will do. God alone should be reverence and feared, but once you give that reverence and fear to a mere creature, then that means that you'll give into any compromise that you think you need to in order to just get by. You know, the scriptures repeatedly warn us against such fear. And this morning, I would like to have us consider several antidotes against ungodly fear. Because this is something that we all have to face, and this is something that we all have to deal with in our lives. And what I'd like to do is to have a study and it'll be in two parts, but to study Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is broken down really into three different sections. In verses 1 through 3, we learn about the Lord's sufficiency as our refuge, strength, and help. And this is presented as an antidote against ungodly fear. Then in verses 4 through 7, we find the antidote to ungodly fear, as we consider the Lord's faithful shepherding care for his people, how he provides for us and protects us throughout our lives. Those two sections we'll cover this morning. I'm going to save for next Lord's Day, verses 8 through 11, where the psalmist ramps up his exhortations and God himself intervenes and commands us to stop striving. And know that he is God. So let me read Psalm 46. Let me begin by reading the text of scripture that we'll be studying this morning. And then I'd like to pray once again that the Lord would bless our time in his precious word. Psalm 46 says this, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. 
He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Let's pray together. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this frail instrument to convey and communicate your word. Oh Lord, help us. Help us and guard us and keep us from ungodly fear. Doing so by means of deepening our trust in you in light of your shepherding care in light of the perfection of the refuge that you supply for us. Bless our time here in the scriptures, and may we, Lord, be built up and edified and encouraged by what we study here together this morning. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray it. Amen. As we look at verses 1 through 3, we see this antidote to ungodly fear through a consideration of the Lord's sufficiency. It says in verse 1, as our refuge, strength, and very present help in trouble. Verse 1, leading into verse 2, gives us a very important connecting thought. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, Then the word in verse 2 is crucial, therefore. In other words, here's a crucial truth about God that we have to stare at and consider and understand that because of this truth, we will do what? We will not fear. This is the necessary conclusion to the truth that is before us. Fear what? Well, the psalmist provides us with a a remarkable benchmark of what we're not to fear. He says, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. If all that were to happen, the psalmist is saying, don't fear. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? I grew up in Southern California, earthquake country, Um, lived in Okinawa. Typhoon seasons were interesting. Hurricanes in the Midwest. I've seen a lot of different calamities. What we're reading here is very different and unique. In fact, I would agree with those who suggests that this is really kind of an imagined undoing of creation. In other words, it's this hypothetical notion of saying, what if the, the whole world were to fall apart? And I say that, and others have suggested this, because this really does bear the appearance of an undoing of the creation order. Because on the third day, remember, when God was making the earth habitable, a place where we could live and survive and subsist, God separated the waters from the dry land. 
And he established the trees and vegetation. Again, an important step towards making the world habitable. But this image of the oceans raging and mountains slipping and crashing into the sea really represents a reversal of that order. It's as if the psalmist had said, what if planet Earth just started to fall apart? What are you going to do? You're going to fear? He says we wouldn't even fear in the face of that. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? By the way, the deluge in biblical history stands as a historic warning and reminder to us of the destructive power that the waters have on this planet. And with that, we have the rainbow in the sky that reminds us that that destruction is what we deserve in view of our sin. It is only because of the grace of God that he has not brought that same destruction to us once again. Instead, Peter reminds us of the fact that there is the coming destruction of the present heavens and the earth that everything is going to be destroyed by intense heat. And because of that, you can tell people that you do believe in global warming. It's just not the anthropogenic kind. It's the theogenic kind that's coming. And that's why we share the gospel with them, because they need to be warned that God's coming judgment is upon us. We don't know the day or the hour, but it's coming. The point of this text so far in Psalm 46 is this, is that even in the face of worldwide calamity, even in the most extreme form, the child of God must not give in to ungodly fear. And here's the reason why, and it's a threefold reason, because God is, number one, our refuge. He's our refuge. Now think about that for a moment. That word in the Hebrew, chassah, appears all over the Old Testament. And it features prominently in Psalm chapter two, or Psalm, uh, Psalm two and verse 12, where it talks about the Messiah and the coming day in which he will judge the nations and shatter them with a rod of iron, executing his judgment and pouring out his wrath. And so the question comes, how do you escape this wrath? Well, that wonderful, amazing, and truly awesome psalm ends with these words, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Where is protection to be found? In the Son, the Son of God, the Messiah. This particular Hebrew word, take refuge, speaks of the trust that one has in a place of safety, like someone who hides in a shelter from a rainstorm. When it is used figuratively, it can speak of someone who vainly trusts in the power and protection of a nation or in false gods, but in these Psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 46, it clearly speaks of the genuine faith and trust one places in the Lord and in the protection that he alone provides. And that's why you see this word 
all over the place in the Old Testament. In Psalm 94 and verse 22, God is the rock of our refuge. Psalm 144 and verse 2, he is our shield and cover in whom we take refuge. Psalm 36 and verse 7, in view of God's precious loving kindness, we take refuge under the shadow of his wings. And there are many, many more examples in which this word is used, reminding us of the fact that there is no place of protection and safety but in the Lord. And there are no substitutes. This is key. There are no substitutes to this refuge. Do you all know the hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul? I'm getting some head nodding. Okay. There's hope. We might try to sing it next week. We'll see. But this verse is so so striking. Listen to this. Other refuge have I none. Let me say it again. If we sing this next week, I want to make sure that we really think about what we're saying. Because this is a powerful The statement, other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, oh, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is saved. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. I have no other place of safety, no other refuge than in our Lord. And so he is our refuge. Therefore, I will not fear. The second truth that is given to us is this, is that he is our strength. And brethren, here again, here's another profound and important truth that we must embrace and understand as best as we can, it is key and important that we understand and remember that we walk not in our own strength, but in the strength of the, what do we call the Lord? We call him the Lord God Almighty. By the way, English words like that are really helpful because they're really simple. He is the God of all might. All might. That's all that that word is saying. He's not the God of some might or a little might. He's the God of all might. Divine omnipotence is his purview in his alone. (laughs) So the Apostle Paul gives that primitive lesson of the gospel to the Athenians. In Acts chapter 17, and a part of that primitive lesson that he gives That theology 101 lesson that he gives is this. He says that in him we live and move and exist. Every breath that you take, every breath that I take, is a gift and provision from God. You are not self-alive, self-subsisting. Every time your heart beats, that is a gift and provision from the Almighty. That's what Paul is saying, and that is a part of the Theology 101 lesson that he is dispensing there. And so when we confess and acknowledge that God is our strength, 
That word odes in the Hebrew, it's often used in context of warfare or other forms of struggle and battle. Sadly, in our vanity and foolishness, we actually have to be reminded of this truth. As we get up in the morning, we think that we're just getting up on our own might and our own strength and breathing of our own capacity. But we see time and again that the scriptures are filled with this kind of a lesson where we're reminded of the fact that, no, the Lord is our strength. Gideon had way too many soldiers in his army at 22,000, so the Lord reduced his number to 300 so that Israel would not become boastful and say, my own power has delivered me. And Paul, as he was contemplating his own frailty in the flesh by virtue of the thorn in the flesh that he had, entreated the Lord three times, and the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Then Paul says in response to that, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Brethren, I would submit to you that time and again, we have to be reminded of the fact that we are powerless in and of ourselves. We need the strength and the power of God for everything. And what's remarkable about this truth, when you think about it, especially when you think about the world in which we live, you have really two parallel truths that have to be kept in mind. And I think that this is very crucial. On the one hand, we are weak, frail creatures On the other hand, we're called to serve as the soldiers of the cross of Christ, and we're in the middle of a war. Now, that's a problem if you don't have any power. The good news is is that God has given us what we need to have real strength to enter into and engage in this battle to which we have been called. And so when Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, the church at Ephesus, When he says, be strong, he doesn't say, be strong by pulling really hard on your own bootstraps or mustering your own strength in and of yourself. No, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's his might that we depend upon. And it's his provision that gives us the strength to fight this battle. And so we have, by the provision of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. These are sufficient instruments of battle. Paul says that of these instruments, he says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. If we had to fight this battle that we're called to by our own wisdom and our own strength, failure would be the only result, period. The good news is is that our commander-in-chief is always with us. He's our refuge, our strength, And a very present help in trouble. And this is the third point that is given to us that formulates the basis for why we should not fear. He's our refuge, strength, and it says, the text says, a very present help in trouble. That's interesting. If you look at the different translations, there's some degree of 
variation in the translations, and the translators have a little bit of difficulty in conveying the fact that there's actually a verb in this portion of the verse, and it's kind of hard to convey. Um, I, I would maybe suggest a translation that literally would say this, he is a help in trouble, he is found mightily, to incorporate the scalar adverb at the end, me'od. He is found mightily. In other words, he's always there. There's no sense in which God is missing in action ever is the idea. Young's literal translation, I think, gets the closest to it. They translate this as a help in adversities found most surely. Found most surely. The point is this. God's provisions never lack sufficiency. And there is never a time that he does not supply what we really need. Not necessarily what we want, but what we actually need so that we would be truly helped. Brethren, mark this. God does not promise us a trial-free life. In fact, the opposite is true. That those who live faithful in Christ Jesus, Paul says to Timothy, will be persecuted. And if they hated our Savior as they did, so too will they hate us. The fact that our Lord is our helper in time of need, I think is somewhat reflected, reflective of what we see in the Lord's teaching to the disciples in John chapter 14, where he said, I will ask of the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. God is our ever-present helper at all times. And though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, whatever calamities we may face in this life, whether the terrors of nature or the terrors of sinful men, God is our refuge, our strength, and ever-present help. And he is with us to the end. Having mentioned the persecution of the Scottish covenanters, how it is that they were afflicted simply for seeking to worship the Lord according to conscience, according to scripture. There's the story of two women who were found guilty of rebellion against the king in their pursuit of worshiping and honoring Christ. Margaret McLaughlin, age 63, and Margaret Wilson, who was of the tender age of 18, were both sentenced to be killed by being tied to a stake in the tidal channel of the Bladnock River near Wigtown Bay. The soldiers who carry out this atrocity place the older of the two, that is Margaret, closer to the bay so that the waters would rise and choke out her life first, it would appear that it was their hope that, that this would cause Margaret Wilson, the younger of the two, to repent, maybe, and recant of her conviction. But this was not the case. Once Margaret McLaughlin died, being drowned by the waters, Margaret Wilson remained faithful, did not relent, 
When the waters rose and choked out her life, she remained faithful to the end. Being obedient to the command of Christ not to fear those who can kill the body. Oh, they can do that, but they cannot destroy the soul. These two women showed forth a boldness in Christ that became a testament to the power of God who redeems his people, frees them from the bondage of men, and makes them willing servants who joyfully follow him to the end. And it is all to the glory of the God who redeemed them. So these first three verses are really the first antidote to ungodly fear. As we move on to verses 4 through 7, we have yet more antidotes to ungodly fear. Where the psalmist says this, he says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Brethren, I would submit to you that this too is yet another antidote to ungodly fear. Why? Because first of all, you see that God's provisions are there for his people as communicated by the reality of this provision of a river whose streams makes, make glad the city of God. And this speaks of God's provision for his people such that they are glad for his provisions and glad ultimately for the provider of those provisions. In fact, I would submit to you that there's almost a parallel of thought between this psalm and Psalm 23. Because here in Psalm 46, you have the river amidst the city of God. In Psalm 23, David celebrates the fact that the Lord leads him beside quiet waters. There are the provisions of God amidst his life. In Psalm 46, God is in the midst of his people as their helper and protector. And David says in Psalm 23, I fear no evil for thou art with me. And in Psalm 46, as we have just read, the nations make their uproar as the enemies of God and as the enemies of his people. But David confesses in Psalm 23, Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. God's protection is always there. And therefore we must not fear. As to this river and the streams that make glad the city of God, we see that the Bible begins and ends with God providing abundantly for his own. You go to the book of Genesis, you go to the book of Revelation, it really kind of begins and ends with the provision of a river. In the Garden of Eden, you have the river that flowed out of Eden into the four streams of Pishon, Gihon, Tigris and Euphrates. In Revelation chapter 22, in the eternal kingdom of God, you see that in the New Jerusalem, there's the river that flows from the throne of God. And on either side of the river, there was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit. Again, depicting the the perfection of God's provision for his own. And so this river whose streams make glad the city of God 
reminds us of the believer's joy and satisfaction, not just in the provisions that God gives, but especially in God himself. When you receive a gift from someone, you give thanks and, and, and have appreciation for the gift itself, do you not? But mark this, what you really appreciate is the fact that someone cared about you and gave you a gift with special consideration for what you wanted or needed. And God, who is the greatest gift giver, gives us what we really need. Sometimes not even what we want or prefer, but what we truly need. And the child of God can be glad in the perfection of those provisions, especially as we give thanks to the gift giver himself. Because he loves his people. He loves us. Within the covenant of redemption, God has supplied all that we need for our salvation, our sanctification, and ultimately our glorification. Christ himself is the living water by whom we have eternal life and every provision that we could ever need. Jesus said, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. So these life-giving streams spoken of here remind us of the sufficiency of, of God, of all that God has provided. By the way, Spurgeon points to the spiritual message. I, I, he sees really this as being a spiritual depiction of God's provision, that God himself is the provision spoken of in terms of the river. Spurgeon says this, he says, What is the river that makes glad the city of God? He says, I answer, God himself is the river. He refers to Jeremiah 2.13, where the Lord says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that, cisterns that can hold no water. And concerning God the Son, he references Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David, and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. God provides for his people. He himself is the ultimate provision. And when we get to verse 5, oh, please stare at these words. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of her. Elohim Bekerbah. God is in the midst of her. I believe that these are two of the most precious words in all of holy writ. When we contemplate the holiness of God... We must acknowledge and recognize that we do not have access to this holy God. And being in the presence of God would mean our death. The fact that God redeems his people and is with his people, gifting us with the, the blessing and the privilege of having his presence is an unspeakable provision and gift. In fact, heaven is so heavenly because of the Lord himself. 
John says in Revelation chapter 21, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. God himself, God himself shall be among them. This is why heaven is so heavenly. It's not that that there's pure gold like clear glass or walls of jasper or foundation a foundation that is made out of precious stones. All that is beautiful to be sure. But heaven is heavenly because our Lord is there and he will be among his people. Brethren, this is the promise of Scripture. This is the reality of our redemption. Our God is with us. He's in the midst of her. Therefore, what? She will not be moved. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Psalmist then says, God will help her when morning dawns, speaking of the ever readiness again of his help. And then it says, the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, the earth melted. You know, it's an interesting thing that, having mentioned Psalm 2 already, that begins with this remarkable statement of the fact that the nations rage. Why do the nations rage? The psalmist asks. Why do they rage and devise a vain thing against the Lord and against his anointed? Why do they do this? They do it because of indwelling sin, because they do not want to bow before a holy God. And their rage and uproar against this almighty God, it is pathetic, isn't it? What power does man have against The Lord God Almighty, none. Sadly, men don't understand that, and so they continue to rage. In their pride and arrogance, they think that they can actually engage in this contest and maybe win. But with a word, God can cause the earth to melt. The very one who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence can, by a single word, dissolve and destroy everything, and someday he will. Mark this, brethren. That kind of power, divine omnipotence, is both dreadful and comforting, all at the same time. It's both dreadful and comforting. It's dreadful for those who stand to be judged by eternal wrath. It is comforting such that we know that omnipotent power is what protects us. You know, the lion is considered to be the king of the jungle. Weighing it in over 300 pounds, that animal, that beast, is unchallenged. 
And the power that God has given to the lion is there for, for the protection of its cubs and for the destruction of any predator. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And his omnipotent power is there for us to protect us. And his omnipotent wrath is coming someday against his enemies. And this is why we need to be faithful to warn others about that coming day. And finally, in verse 7, the psalmist returns essentially to where he began. He says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold or fortress. Selah. By calling him the God of Jacob, he's reminding us of the fact that God is faithful. He's faithful. The promise that he made to Abraham, that through Abraham, that a seed would be given, that the nations would be blessed through this seed, And we know and understand that by means of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that seed came, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we confess that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. This promise-making and promise-keeping God is our stronghold and fortress, and he is so now and forevermore. And with all these things in view, my question to you is, shall we fear? Shall we fear anything? No. Let me close with some, a few thoughts and considerations in view of what we've just studied. The first thing I would say to you, brethren, is this. Beware of false fortresses. Have you noticed that everything that God has made, Satan is busy about the process of creating some sort of a counterfeit? God made marriage. What do we have in our nation today? All kinds of counterfeit versions of marriage. Satan is never on vacation. He works around the clock. And he creates counterfeits of everything that God is and God and that God makes. We need to beware of false fortresses and understand that there is no substitute for the Almighty. By the way, We should take special note whenever the Lord repeats himself in the word of God. I'm always struck by how it is that the Lord repeats himself. And I think to myself, wow, am I really that dumb and slow that I need repetition like this? The answer is yes. Three times in Galatians 2.16, Paul tells us that no one is justified by the works of the law. Once, twice, three times in one verse. And why do I need that repetition? I need that repetition because there's something within the human heart that wants to think otherwise. Oh, I can contribute to my redemption. So let me make a little contribution here. I'm so good. That's what the human heart says. Scripture says otherwise. Here, with reference to Psalm 46, 
We are told not once, but three times that God is our refuge, verse 1. He's our stronghold, verse 7. And he is our stronghold, verse 11. Where are you going to find safety and protection? And what are the substitutes available to you? God alone is our refuge, and there are no substitutes. Not your best friends, not your family members, a wife, a husband, a career, politicians, celebrities. No one can provide the protection and safety that God alone can supply. I plead with you every day, wake up in the morning and confess this truth. That we all have this proclivity due to our weakness and indwelling sin, to imagine that there are substitutes. Beware of of Satan's devices. He would gladly have you place your faith and trust in anyone or anything else but in the Lord himself. By the way, we visited four... Actually, I don't even know how many families we visited. I'm sorry, but um, it's, the number's not important. But uh, I've managed to reference Ecclesiastes 9, I think, in every visit. I keep coming back to this text, but Solomon gives us a very solemn uh, testimony concerning our human nature. He says that, that evil... is in the heart of all men. And he says that insanity, literally, the word in the Hebrew means insanity. Insanity is in their hearts. All their days, and after this they go to the dead. I'm, I'm paraphrasing the text, but it's, it's, a, it's a stunning verse. We're all a bunch of madmen. The only one who can deliver us from our insanity is the Lord. And even then, it won't be totally rectified until we're in glory. The natural man thinks he can find a refuge, an alternative to God himself. And so in the final judgment, in the sixth seal judgment in Revelation chapter 6, when God pours out his judgment upon mankind, we see that the, the wicked, they say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who was able to stand? Hide us! Give us a refuge from this almighty God. What is this but a display of insanity? It's like Adam hiding behind the trees from the all-seeing God in the garden. It's what sinful people do. Imagining that there's a place of safety and protection other than God himself. Secondly, This crucial lesson that we've been considering, the fact that God is our refuge and stronghold, our fortress amidst the raging nations, it should remind us of the fact that, as we said at the beginning, we are at war. 
Brethren, I believe that this is a calibrating understanding. Too many times we think and imagine that our mission here is to befriend a world that hates Christ. I'm not suggesting that we go around picking battles with people, but what I'm saying to you is this. The natural man hates Christ and hates the gospel. And the sooner we get that into our understanding, the, the better we are in terms of comprehending the, what is before us. The fact that we are at war and the fact that Paul enjoins the Ephesian believers to stand firm in the strength of the Lord's might, why? Because we're in the middle of a spiritual battle, and he describes that spiritual battle. We are at war. I mentioned the persecution that the Scottish Covenanters endured already. With the ascension of Charles II to the monarchy in 1660, not only did the Scottish Covenanters suffer, but many pastors were ejected from their pastorate. As many as 1,760 pastors were ejected, including John Bunyan and John Flavel. Both of these men wrote treaties on the fear of God and our need to fear God rather than men. Why? Because they were facing a day, a time, a generation in which their generation needed to hear the same message. Don't fear men, fear God. Don't fear those who kill the body but can't destroy the soul. John Flavel says this, <clears throat> he says, Christianity is a warfare and Christians must endure hardships Delicacy and tenderness is an odd, is odd a sight in a Christian as it is in a soldier. We're not, we're not to be delicate people in the sense of, of tiptoeing around and imagining that we're just here on vacation. This is war. And the armament that has been given to us is sufficient and powerful and it is all that we need to engage in this battle. And the good news is, is that our commander-in-chief is the Lord God Almighty. All now maybe some of you up to this point have been wondering, now why didn't we sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God this morning? That was a judgment call. Um, I think you sang that last week, so I decided that, well, we'll just skip a, a Sunday. But I'm going to ask you to look at that hymn again in preparation for the next Lord's Day because we're going to finish Psalm 46. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11. And I want you to, if you would, please, just prepare your hearts and minds to sing that hymn and to contemplate the depth and the breadth of what you're singing even before we sing it. Verse 4 says this, That word above all earthly power, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. 
They can kill the body. And they want to. And if they had the power and authority to do so, they would do it in mass. But we're not to fear, ever. Lastly and finally, this particular contemplation that is throughout this psalm, the fact that God is with us, I want us to think of that even as we approach this table here this morning. The Lord promises to be with us, to abide with us. He is with us. He dwells in us by means of the Spirit. He dwells among his people and is here even now. And in coming to this table, this communion with Christ, we come to this table partaking of these elements and fellowshipping with Christ as we partake, remembering the sufficiency of his sacrifice which was made on our behalf. Without this, there's nothing. Without our great mediator, our king of righteousness, Malki Zedek, who serves in the order of Melchizedek, because of him, we have all the riches in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. May the Lord prepare our hearts then for this table. Let me close in prayer. Precious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this privileged time of worship. Lead us now in this this continued time of worship as we come to this table. May we honor you in it as we remember Christ, all that he is and all that he has done on our behalf. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.